Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Marco Leonetti. Marco is the owner of Utopia Hair Care, a chain of hair salons based in Douglas on the Isle of Man. Uh, Marco, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for taking the time to join us absolutely thank you it's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us um the whole reason we're here of course is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus but rather than just diving straight into that topic given the ongoing covid19 situation i do feel it's appropriate that we address that to begin with because for leaders in all walks of life it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time and of course working in the services industry on the isle of man i'm interested to understand just to what extent it's affected you and your business as well yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, uh, the impact it had on the Isle of Man uh, as a small community uh, was quite far-ranging and far-reaching. We uh, we were definitely able to um, look at the um, restraints and the restrictions that were being enforced on, on us by our local government. Um, and I have to say, as a population of just short of 80,000 people, uh, we would be able to, uh, you know, we were able to um, restrict our movement um, all our social distancing was uh, pretty much well enforced uh, and as a business we uh, obviously we had to lock down you know and uh, that in itself uh, created a huge amount of uh, financial challenges that uh, we uh, we weren't really prepared for and um, with regards to all of the sort of COVID secure guidelines that have come in, so I can imagine as well as the social distancing, there's been a lot of PPE wearing that's been required, as is probably the case here in the UK. Do you think that these changes that have come about during the lockdown period could well be here to stay, even in the longer term future when COVID-19 hopefully is no longer an issue and we do have a working vaccine in place? I can, I mean, I could only... Uh speak for ourselves on the Isle of Man, but, you know, and uh, I have to say that when we closed the borders to uh, movement on and off the island, we were very, very fortunate to have been able to uh, cut our new cases, our testing. Uh, we were able to uh, man-manage all the uh, uh, high risks um, and contain them on the island to the point that uh, we were able, as a uh, as a community, as a service, we were able to go back to work at the beginning of June, which was, you know, maybe a month earlier than, than the, you know, obviously England and uh, the mainland, as we call it. Uh, and we were able to go back to work um, just not wearing any PPE, uh, not mm. having to social distance or, or anything like that. And we're currently now enjoying that freedom that you on the mainland don't have at the moment. Uh, and our borders are now um, just been opened to uh, Isle of Man residents returning. They would have to take a test and then self-isolate for 14 days before they're allowed to go back into the community. So we are currently enjoying our normal way of life, which uh, is pretty difficult for the guys that are, you know, in England to maybe uh, understand that one, but we are enjoying that. 
Mm, it's certainly interesting to see sort of the difference uh, because it's been so well handled on the Isle of Man, particularly in comparison to what's uh, been going on um, over in um, the, on the mainland, uh, for sure, absolutely. Um, and just sort of taking the focus away from current affairs and the COVID-19 situation just for a moment, I can imagine that when you were setting up your own hairdressing business at the age of 18 many, many years ago now, a challenge such as this yeah. like may never have been foreseen on the, uh, the horizon. But um, I'm interested to understand just... Um, what is it that sort of inspired you to get going within your industry? I understand you came from a family of hairdressers. So was it always yeah. kind of destiny that you'd kind of follow that same pathway? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you know, when it's something that you've been brought up with and you've grown up with as a child, um, you're in a comfortable environment. And, and looking after, um, you know, ladies as such in terms of, um being inspirational, being creative, all of those things, you know, are a wonderful um, tool for young adults coming up through the uh, the ranks now. And we have um, obviously a staff of over fifty people now on the island, uh, and our juniors are very much an important, integral, uh, long term investment that we have for our business. Um, and I think certainly um, the industry um, is. Is massive, you know. It's it's such a, a mobile industry. Uh, we can travel when we're allowed to travel again. We're able to take our our skills abroad and uh, and utilize them anywhere we are in the world. So hairdressing is a fantastic profession to be involved in. Yes. That's really, really encouraging to uh, to hear uh, for sure. And um, as you've sort of gone through um, sort of your life and career in the uh, the industry, what would you say has been sort of your biggest kind of learning curve along the way? I think, Scott, you know, uh, having endured um, three recessions through obviously the 80s, the, the 90s and, and, and the, the 2008 one. Mm. Um, I mean, and now this is a massive challenge for anybody that uh, in in business and in the industry that we're in, it's a massive challenge because not only do we have to manage our own staff and, and our, our own sort of uh, well-being, but we need to make sure that the people that are coming into our areas are comfortable, feeling secure, and and, and don't feel any anxiety whatsoever. So, mm. the biggest learning curve for me is is learning how to deal with human uh, levels. You know people that are happy and, and, and are with you and people that are very anxious and very, you know, on edge. And we have to be able to manage that more than anything. That's a big, big thing for me. Yeah. Mm. It's certainly sort of thrust, been thrust back into the um, the international limelight as well as the national limelight recently, hasn't it? The importance of mental health and well-being by the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Just how important is that within leadership as a whole, both in terms of safeguarding your own during a pressurizing time like this, and that of the people around you? I think being aware of everybody that that comes within your general sphere, you know, your family, your friends, or what have you. Um, you know, a true leader will be able to identify individuals that maybe are behaving slightly differently and, and to be able to wrap them up and encourage them and give them comfort uh, and not just to flick them away and go, you know, get yourself sorted sort of attitude. I think it's really important that we all support each other and look out for each other, definitely. Yes, exactly. It's something that um, we're certainly going to have to uh, keep a close eye on going forward because 
as things start to slowly return to normal, particularly here in the uh, the UK, as we've seen with the return of schools uh, this month um, as well. Um, mental health and well-being, there are a lot more issues um, relating to that rising as we sort of come out of lockdown and try to become accustomed again to, uh, to daily life. Absolutely. So that's going to be something to, uh, to certainly keep an eye on. Um, just reflecting on um, sort of your experience running your own business yeah. and seeing out those three recessions, as you mentioned, if you were to maybe give some advice, Marco, to somebody who was maybe looking to step into business for the first time and make it themselves, maybe of the younger generation of listeners tuning into this, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, in the face of adversity, when people looking at a scenario like we're, we're all facing, uh, not having any fear, properly have belief in your own abilities uh, because you are that person. You are that person that can drive yourself forward um, and find the different methods that uh, are available to you to project yourself out, make yourself available. And the, the most important thing is being passionate about what you do. Uh, if you're passionate about what you do, you will always float to the top, definitely. I think you're absolutely right. Passion is one hugely important thing. You've got to, of course, be sort of, you've got to have your heart in what you do. I think that's absolutely right. And um, just thinking about it um, as well, um, being willing to learn in that profession is also something that's incredibly important because you may well be good at what you do, which is why you do it, but nobody's ever a finished article as such in what they do, are they? It's still a constant process of development. Absolutely, Scott. Yeah, it's really important that... um, you know, you're only as good as, as your last tech or your last uh, service that you've offered. Um, and we always strive to do tomorrow better than we did today, you know, because that's what people measure you on, definitely. And um, when sort of you are going through a little bit of a difficult time, of course, we've mentioned the three recessions and obviously COVID-19 a couple of times now. But when you're staring a crisis in the face like that, when you do need a little bit of inspiration and motivation for yourself as a leader, where is it that you tend to sort of find that from? Do you know, I, I like to have a little bit of quiet time and um, I have uh, I have six Huskies and uh, I love to go cross country running with them. Obviously not in all six at once, but certainly in threes. Uh, and that gives me time to, to have me time, you know, gives me a chance to really think uh, um, and, and come up with solutions that possibly uh, can improve the way we, we do things. Uh, and I think certainly um, letting situations evolve and, and putting yourself in a position where you can restructure and reanalyze how you do things whether it's staffing levels, whether it's product purchase, uh, whether it's ways that you can encourage your client base to uh, feel a bit more relaxed about coming and spending money. Uh, Those are all the the things that I find. When I have my own quiet time, that's when I I do my my main sort of decision-making. Because to be metaphorical about it, um, I suppose that when you're in the hectic world of running a business, it's so easy to forget, isn't it, that sometimes you need a little bit of time away from the heat of the kitchen to just kind of step out and sort of switch off a little bit, take the time to sort of take stock, think about things, and then go again. Yeah. I learned a long time ago, if you stand too close to the wall, you don't see the cracks. Sometimes you just got to back off, and that's when you, you, you actually see the cracks that are in that wall, definitely. And I think that's one of the soundest pieces of advice that you can give to any aspiring leader out there. Sometimes you have to take a step back, take stock, and then you can come up with a better response rather than just simply being knee-jerk reactive to issues as and when they arise and really go at it the right way. 
Absolutely. You always got to give yourself time. Um, just step away from the questions, give yourself time, and then go back with a, a proper, uh, you know, a proper decision that's full of wisdom, definitely. Mm. And just thinking about the uh, the future now, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Marco, because I am conscious that we are running short of time. Um, we do yeah. know, of course, that um, particularly here in the UK, there's a new normal to get adjusted to over the uh, the next uh, few months. Um, but obviously on the Isle of Man, it's a very different situation. You're embracing a return to life as it was. Um, so over the next yeah. 12 months for yourselves, what is it that you're really sort of hoping to achieve at the business? And where do you see Utopia being this time next year? Well, uh, like I said to you at the very start of the program, Scott, you know our um, our visions to our juniors, to our trainees, to our youth, um, and uh, obviously not being able to send our trainees to the mainland, to London and to Manchester for training or what have you, we've now got to re- redevelop ourselves in terms of online training um, and make sure that we focus on them because they really are the sustainability of our business. Um, although the core of our senior staff has over 30 years experience each, but uh, they mentor the young ones and uh, hopefully uh, their future's guaranteed and, and, and that's all we can ask for. The, you know, Not only the Ireland, but the UK have got to look to their youth, they've got to look to their universities, their schools and their education because if we miss this gap now over the next year or two, we're going to we're going to have a massive ten year hole in our youth. Mm, exactly right we can't afford to lose such a generation of promising youngsters that is very very true Marco for sure and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how um, governments not just of course in the UK but also on the Isle of Man as well can prioritise um, the youth and really bring them through and make sure that the next generation is raring to go and just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today as well I actually think it would be wonderful at some point in the next year if we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how some of these hopes are being born out to absolutely that would be fabulous just uh, as a backup and a follow-up to this that would be great thanks scott i think it would be incredibly intellectually stimulating for the listeners tuning into this as well for sure and most importantly marco until we do hopefully speak again in future please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well thanks scott thanks for your time It's been a real pleasure. Thank you ever so much. And I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of the listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions if you are based in the UK and look after yourselves and others because it makes a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, to welcome Marco Leonetti onto the programme, owner of Utopia Hair Care on the Isle of Man. Um, Next up on the show today, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew. Strauss. Um, During his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains who secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable causes. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood 
for services to support just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy 
everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club Quite. you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of 
a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was was brought in um 
you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on home soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. 
and I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.